G'day. Hi, everybody. Now, uh, Richard, can you hear me very well, sir? A little bit louder. Is that a, is that a bit better? Okay, tell me if it gets a bit too loud, won't you? Great to see you here at the EU public meeting. Uh, there's a couple of people who um, are sitting on the floor at the back, so maybe if there's a bit of space near you, you can sort of shuffle towards the middle so that a few extra people might be able to grab a, a seat. That might be nice. If you can do that, that'd be great. Thanks very much. Now, I have a question for you. Here's my question. I want you to put your hand straight up in the air. Don't think too hard about it. It's not a hard question. Put your hand straight up in the air, big and proud, if, if, if you think you're free. If you would consider yourself a free person, put your hand up. Okay? Now, leave your hand up. Put your hand up. Okay, right? If you think you're free, put your hand down if you've got a hex debt. Oh, yeah. See, interestingly, we often think we're more free than we really are. If you have a hex debt, let's just be honest, you're in bondage to the government. You owe them money. Um, I should know because um, I still have a hex debt. I've had a hex debt growing for a very long time and I've just, just never earned enough to have to pay it back. They've never come asking for it because I've never earned enough. That's sort of interesting. Um, the hex debt had probably doubled in the time that I've had it, but you know, every year they send me a nice note saying, hey, this is what it is, but you don't have to pay anything. That's okay, that's a pretty easy sort of slavery, I guess. But see, we often think we're free when actually we might not be. And one of the things I want to suggest to you today, as we reflect on this particular part from God's Word that Steph read for us, is that maybe you are less free than you think. Maybe you're less free than you think. But also that Jesus comes to give you the freedom that you crave. Jesus comes to give you the freedom that you crave, even if you're not always aware of that craving. That's what we're going to sort of explore in today. So if you've got a Bible there, it'd be really helpful to open it up to Luke chapter 4. Uh, and if you were here last week, you'll know that over these first five weeks of the EU public meeting, the EU's art kindly asked me to talk uh, from Luke's Gospel about the person of Jesus Christ. And so we jumped in last week at Luke chapter 20, which was sort of an unusual place to start, and now we're sort of jumping right back to Luke chapter 4. What I'm trying to do is try to nail some big sort of key themes of Luke's presentation of the historical person of Jesus so we can all get the big picture. So jumping in here at Luke 4, why am I jumping in at Luke chapter 4? Well, because Luke chapters 1 to 3 is really helpful and important background to understanding who Jesus is. We might come back to that later in the course of the year. Luke chapter 4 is where Jesus starts what's called his public ministry. Right, so Jesus had a job. Actually, interestingly, Jesus had a couple of jobs for probably the best part of 20 years. Jesus, we assume, learnt his earthly father's trade. That is, Joseph was a carpenter. We assume that Jesus, as was sort of the have at the time probably learnt to be a carpenter and worked as a carpenter until Luke says he was probably about 30. When Jesus was about 30, he starts this public ministry and he goes through a massive job shift. What's the new job that Jesus gets at age 30? Well, Luke makes it very clear in his telling of Jesus' story. Jesus' job was to be a man with a message. That's Jesus' job. To be a man with a message. 
a divine message. And you can see this really clearly even in the way Luke structures this opening sort of portrait of Jesus' ministry. I've, I've drawn it up here on the board. You can see we're looking at from chapter 4, verse 14, through to the end of chapter 4. And there's a Luke sort of structured it very intentionally. I don't know if you've ever done sort of writing. You probably just, maybe you like me, just launch in willy-nilly. That's not what Luke, Luke's very carefully ordered his account here. And what you see is in chapter 4, verses 14 and 15, Luke gives a summary statement about Jesus. Then he gives two examples, one in Nazareth, one in Capernaum, and then he has a concluding sort of summary statement. So let's have a look at the summary statement. You've got your Bible there. Luke chapter 4, verses 14 and 15. This is what Luke says, what he writes. Luke 14. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues and everyone praised him. What's he doing? He's teaching. Jump then to verse 44, right at the end of the chapter. And Jesus kept on preaching in the synagogues of Judea. Same idea. What he's doing is preaching. Then if you look at the two examples that Luke gives, one in Nazareth, one in Capernaum, notice what Jesus is doing in both of these places. Not just what he's doing, but actually what Jesus says he's doing. If you look at Nazareth, look, um, we'll read from verse 16. Jesus went to Nazareth where he'd been brought up and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, as was his custom, he stood up to read and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim good news, uh, proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. What we see here is that Jesus says, okay, he's given the scroll of Isaiah, he reads out this particular passage, and then he says, Verse 20, he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, sat down, the eyes of everyone in the synagogue was fastened on him. He began by saying to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. He's saying that guy I just read about in the prophet Isaiah, who says the spirit of the Lord is upon me to proclaim, to proclaim, to proclaim, he uses the word three times, he says today that's fulfilled in your hearing. He takes that passage from Isaiah and says, that's about me. What's his job? To proclaim. So we can add to our little picture here. We're saying at Nazareth, verses 18 and 19, three times Jesus identifies his job is to proclaim. What about when he gets to Capernaum? If you jump forward to verse 43 in Capernaum, you can see what Jesus says. I'll read from verse 42 now. At daybreak, Jesus went out to a solitary place. The people were looking for him. And when they came to where he was, they tried to keep him from leaving them. Why did they not want Jesus to go other places? Well, it's because if you read the details of what happens in Capernaum, Jesus does these amazing miracles. Like, really amazing. You know, there's people with unclean spirits who are healed. There's people with illnesses who are all being healed. Amazing stuff. And so they're going, wow, this is awesome. We've got this freaky cool stuff on tap in this guy Jesus. If we keep him here... Man, our tourist dollars are going to go through the roof. Well, I don't know about tourist dollars, but that, this is awesome. He can fix all our problems. Stay here, Jesus, stay here. Look at Jesus' response. Verse 43. 
But Jesus said, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns also because that is why I was sent. In Jesus' own self-understanding, his task is to proclaim. Jesus, he has a job. He's proclaimed this good news of the kingdom of God. He's a man with a message. And did you notice in both of these that we did get that phrase, proclaim the good news, or the good news. Now this, um, I mean in English that's a couple of different words, right? Proclaim the good news. You might think of that as two different concepts. In the original that Luke wrote this in, which was Greek, that phrase, proclaim the good news, is actually just one word. It's not two concepts, it's one word. Proclaim the good news. And the word is not a particularly Christian word that's used in other Greek writers. Uh, for example, when a conquering Roman general would enter the imperial city with all his troops and all the slaves and all the booty, sort of thing, bringing it all in, they would proclaim the good news of his victory. They used that same word. Right? It's this concept of a grand public announcement. That's what Jesus came to do. Make a grand public announcement from God. Interestingly, the word that's used for this proclaiming the good news is this word. In Greek, you were Galitza. Okay, you say thank you very much. Um, you can only write that down if you do maths or physics, right? Because then you know all the Greek letters. But <laughs> you and Galitza, why I should tell you, this is this word for proclaim the good news. This is the Greek word from which we get the English words. Can you guess? I wonder if, can you guess? It's the word from which we get the word evangelism or evangelical. What do these words mean? They mean to proclaim the good news. We're proclaiming the same good news that Jesus said, this is my job, to proclaim the good news. We are the evangelical union because we've been gripped by this good news and we're convinced, because Jesus told us so, that it's to be shared with others. We're into proclaiming the good news with the university, with this city, with the world. That's what we're on about. He came proclaiming good news. Um, I've been very blessed because I've got five kids. Our youngest kid um, has just started kindergarten this year, like kindy, you know? So she's finished her preschool years, graduated. Yes, they had graduation. They dressed up a bit seriously, more awards. <laughs> incredibly cute. Anyway. Um, <laughs> She's now at Kitty. I try not to tell her she's only got 30 years of schooling ahead of her, but that might be depressing when you're five. <laughs> she is a great kid. She's a great kid, but because she's our fit, we understand that your experience of Kitty is really, really poor. I mean, you've got to go five days a week, six hours a day, you've got to wear this sort of uniform, carry all your food with you. I'm like survival pants. <laughs> And, this, and, and she's a great kid and she holds it all together when she's at school. She's great. So when she gets home, it's pretty much all under us. And that's okay, we're used to this, you know, because we're incredibly, you know, patient like Jesus, we cover that. Well, no, if only that were the case. But 
Sometimes what happens is when in the afternoon or in the evenings, you might say, oh, dad, 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 can I, can I do this? It's something she really wants to do. And if I start to say, oh, well, and I just start like that, she senses, oh, maybe it's going to be a no. And so she just starts to <laughs> and she doesn't normally do this, right? <laughs> but of course she's so tired. But she just starts going, <clears throat> even if I'm trying to tell her something good. You're going to say, oh, it would be even better if you did it like this. That would be really great. I'm trying to tell her good news and she's just going, ah, and she won't listen. And now, because I'm very patient, they're like, oh, no, no, no. Well, no, unfortunately, no. I sort of, therefore, I try to hand over the top. She goes to 11, and we're, <laughs> anyway, we're working on that in the power of God's spirit. So, <laughs> the issue is, though, when someone's got good news to tell you, surely the most basic response is just hear them out, isn't it? Just at least listen. I mean, you may not agree with it, you might not accept it. You may even decide it's not good news, but surely if someone says, I've got good news for you, it's at least worth listening to. Okay? Jesus says, I came to proclaim good news. My question is, are you prepared to listen? Are you just, just, just listen to me? Now, how do you listen to it? Do you take yourself down to Victoria Park, sit in the sunshine, open yourself up there? Jesus, I'm all ears. Speak to me. Well, I don't think that's actually the way Jesus intends us to listen to it. That is, you've got his words <laughs> recorded for you by the authoritative, inspired eyewitnesses. Right? What it means to listen to him means to actually read. So, in all the things you're going to do this year, I just want to say, are you ready to listen to the good news that Jesus says he's come to give you? I don't know your, your background, I don't know what you know about God and Jesus and these sort of things, but do yourself a favour, at least take some time just to read it and listen to the good news he says he's come to bring you. I mean, maybe you can tick the I want to investigate Jesus box on your connect card, that would be great. Or get into a small group. What We'd love to help you. If you've never stopped to listen to Jesus before, we want to help you. We're not into pressuring you, because frankly Jesus isn't into that. So we're not into pressuring you, we just want to serve you and help you. Someone will ring you, someone will say, here's some options, you can sort of meet up for coffee and we can read God's Word together and talk about it, you can join a group that's sort of investigating Jesus, whatever you like, keep going to public meetings, come to a small group, just listen. Give the guy a hearing if he says he's got good news for you. Okay, so what is his good news though? Let's move on. What is the actual good news he's come to announce? Well, the key is in the bit he read out in verses 18 and 19 from the prophet Isaiah. And the, what you learn here is that the good news has two parts to it. The first part of the good news is actually about himself, who he is. Which is a bit weird. I've got good news for you. Let me tell you about me. Right? That's the first thing he does. But then he says, and let me tell you what I am to do. Right? There are the two parts of his good news. And you can see it a little... If you look at verses 18 and 19, which is this quotation from this Old Testament prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 61 is where most of it comes from, 
again, it is divided into a sort of a nice sort of pattern. There's sort of a, a, a summary at the top and a summary at the bottom. The summary at the top is where he says in verse 18, I come to proclaim good news to the poor. Right? At the bottom, he says, I come to announce the year of the Lord's favour. Right? To proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. What is this? And I think these two sort of help you understand each term. They sort of mutually interpret each other. What is this year of the Lord's favour that he's talking about? Okay, well, what you need to do there is you need to understand that in Luke chapter 4, where we're reading what Jesus did, he's quoting Isaiah 61 about the year of the Lord's favour, but Isaiah 61 is actually picking up a concept from even earlier in Israel's history all the way back to Leviticus chapter 25. Right? So the year of the Lord's favour here corresponds to what's called the year of Jubilee in Leviticus chapter 25. What's this year of Jubilee? So in Leviticus chapter 25, God's people have been rescued out of slavery in Egypt, brought to Mount Sinai, God gives them the law, the Ten Commandments, and he tells them how to live as his holy people. One of the things he says is, every 50 years you ought to celebrate this year of Jubilee. What happens in the year of Jubilee? The year of Jubilee is amazing. What was to happen in the year of Jubilee? If you had been sort of in the intervening 50 years, if you'd sort of come into hard financial times and you had to sell off some of your ancestral lands, in the year of Jubilee, they were to be given back to you. You would just get them all back. It's like press the massive reset button. If you had come into really hard times and you had to sell yourself into sort of service of someone else, either as a slave or as a sort of hired help, and you had not yet been able to either be redeemed, you know, bought out of that slavery, in the year of Jubilee, you were just to be set free. This was the mighty year of Jubilee. Now, the interesting thing is we don't know if national Israel ever celebrated it. We have no record that they ever got through 50 years of actually consistently serving and worshipping the one true living God. They actually ever got that far. They so often went off the rails and started worshipping other gods. But this was the idea that God had set for them. So this was a literal sort of meant to be a year of release, a year of freedom. When you get to Isaiah 61, where this is referred to, it is no the way the prophet Isaiah is talking about it, he's not talking about a literal year of Jubilee. He's talking about what we might call the eschatological Jubilee. Eschatological just means looking to the future, sort of, of the future, of the end. Right? If you want to know more about eschatology, it's such an important idea for understanding the whole of Christianity, the whole of the Bible... We're going to have our EU annual conference, sort of five days, middle of the year, last week of the holidays. We're going to do eschatology for five days. It's going to be awesome. Yeah, so I really hope you can come on with that. But what's happening in Isaiah 51 is the prophet Isaiah is taking this idea of the year of Jubilee and he's saying there is going to come a great day of Jubilee in the future, a massive day of Jubilee sometime in the future. That's what's going to happen. And then Jesus, when he gets to Luke 4, he reads this massive promising passage and then says, today this has been fulfilled in your hearing. 
the great eschatological day. Jubilee says, yeah, that's today. Can you imagine if you were sitting there in Nazareth, which we know is where he grew up. He played in your backyard with your kids. You've got a table and chairs at home that Jesus and his dad made. You sit on them to eat your breakfast. And this guy who's been wondering, comes back and he says, you know that great eschatological day of Jubilee we all know from the prophet Isaiah? Well, I'm the guy and today's the day. It's preposterous, isn't it? That's why I've called this little reflection preposterous. This is crazy talk. But that's what he's saying. He's saying that person in the prophet Isaiah who makes this promise, and that, that person is a very strange person in the Isaiah prophecy, is this enigmatic, mysterious figure who appears several times between chapter 40 and chapter 66, who's sort of known as the servant, the servant of the Lord. This servant of the Lord appears a few times and we're not given lots of detail about it except that the Spirit of God is going to be on him and he's going to announce and establish God's kingdom. God's forever kingdom. That's who this guy is. That's what he's going to do. And Jesus said, that's me. Today's the day. How would you, I mean, what reaction would you have? You'd think it was preposterous, right? This is crazy talk. And look at their reaction. Look at their reaction. You've got your Bible there. Isaiah chapter, uh, Luke chapter 4. Verse 22. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. But then, isn't this Joseph's son? They said. You catch that hint of sort of scepticism there? So I don't want you to think about this. Here's the guy. Here's the guy who says, I've got good news from God, the great promises that you were looking for. I'm the guy. They stand inside and go, Isn't he Joseph's son? You know, it's, I'm not buying that. I'm not buying that. That's preposterous. I'm not buying But see, Jesus has been going around. And when he's been going to some other places, he's done amazing miracles. And it seems that they actually go, Do some of your fancy stuff. Give us a look at some of that gear. And Jesus knows that. Jesus knows. And he actually says here, he says, verse 24, sorry, verse 23, Jesus says, and surely you will quote this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. And you will tell me, do here in your hometown what we heard you did in Capernaum. He said, truly I tell you, prophets are not accepted in our hometowns. That this message won't be accepted by you. That's what always happens to prophets. They just can't fathom that this guy might be actually an agent of God. And then he quotes two examples, Elijah and Elijah from the Old Testament, who very interestingly, the unbelief in national Israel was such at the time that God's, these two sort of prophets of God at different times, they were both sent, because of the unbelief in national they were sent to other nations, people in other countries. And when they went to these other places, there was faith exercised by these other people. They, they were believed and in response to the belief, then these prophets did amazing miracles in the power of God. Do you get the link? It's actually, if you're not going to believe, God will send the prophet to others and if they believe, yes, they might be blessed with all these amazing signs. And Jesus says, that's what's happening here. So then you draw up, draw the parallel. Okay, so who are you saying that we are, Jesus? 
You're saying that we're like unbelieving Israel. You're saying like we're the ones who rejected God's word. You're saying we're not on for God. They get pretty upset. You can see it there. Verse 28. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of the town, took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on the way. There is a message here, right? The message is, will you believe his words? A, will you listen to them? He says he's got good news. Please, will you listen? Will you actually obey them? Will you accept them? Believe them? Or are you standing back, hand on chin, going, only if you show me the fancy stuff, Jesus. Only if you show me the fancy stuff. Give me a sign. Do something in my life right now. Get me out of this fix. Then they go. Jesus saying, no, that's not how it works. Will you believe my words? Will you believe my words? Okay. So, this is sort of exploring what happens in Nazareth. What you notice, though, in the middle of this quote from Isaiah, is there's a bit of a shake. He says, I'm coming to pronounce good news to the poor, the year of the Lord's favour. In the middle, he says, I come to pr- pronounce or announce freedom for the prisoners, sight for the blind, to set the captives free. Notice how freedom gets a big guernsey. It seems to me that freedom is sort of a particular thing. What's the content of the good news that this Jesus comes to announce? It's freedom. Well, that's pretty good. Everyone wants to be free. question is, what the heck is he talking about? What sort of freedom? Now, this is in the context of the year of Jubilee. So, that can help us. What was freedom in the actual year of Jubilee? It was for those who were actually in slavery that they might be released, set free. What was it when that was taken up and used by Isaiah as the eschatological Jubilee? Well, at this time, the whole nation of Israel was actually in exile. They were oppressed by foreign powers. So those who needed freeing were actually the whole of the nation, the Israelites. They needed freeing from these oppressive foreign powers. So when you get to Luke 4, he says, I've come to announce this. Well, what sort of freedom is he announcing? What slavery is he saying you can be free from? Well, to get an answer to that question, you've got to move on and look at what happens when he gets to Capernaum. Having been nearly killed by his hometown in Nazareth, Jesus goes off to this other city, this other town, Capernaum in Galilee. And what happened there is he starts teaching, we read that, but then he does three he does three things. This is Jesus' demonstration, if you like, Jesus' deeds. He does three things. Three moments. The first is when a, a person is there in the synagogue, that is a Jewish place of worship. The guy's there in the synagogue and we, Luke tells us this guy had an unclean spirit. Some sort of spiritual evil power at work within him. And what we read here is that Jesus rebukes, is the literal word used, he rebukes the unclean spirit out of the past. Then you read, he goes to Simon, Simon Peter, who we'll meet later on, as becomes one of Jesus' sort of core disciples. He goes to Simon's house. Simon's mother-in-law is there. She's sick. 
lying down, like really quite sick, Jesus goes up to her and, same word used, he rebukes the illness. And the illness departs. And then once the news gets out, man, it's going crazy. Everyone in Capernaum is bringing all this people. So there's sick people coming, he's healing. And there's people who have these unclean spirits, they're coming. And what you read again is, Jesus rebukes the unclean spirits and they depart. What sort of freedom is Jesus bringing? I think the point is, Jesus brings freedom from slavery to spiritual forces of darkness, spiritual forces of evil. That's the freedom that he brings. Not just to the spiritual forces themselves, but also to the consequences that come to humanity because we have followed evil spiritual forces. That is, because we actually rejected God, gone our own way, what the Bible calls sin, various consequences come to us, including just general sickness comes because humanity as a whole has wandered off away from God. So you see not just spiritual forces, but the consequences of our following of these evil forces. Jesus brings freedom. Now this makes sense in the picture that Luke has built up of Jesus because a little bit earlier, what happened was as Jesus had been a carpenter, John the Baptist, one crazy great prophet of God, came along, was preaching this, um, preaching about baptism for repentance, for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus is baptised, you read this in Luke 3. The heavens open and sort of the Holy Spirit comes down in a physical manifestation like a bird on top of Jesus and Jesus sort of is blessed with the Spirit in a sort of a visible way. Right, the Spirit comes upon him. What's the next thing that happens? Well, then Luke says, beginning of Luke chapter 4, full of the Spirit, Jesus is led out into the wilderness where he does, where he's tempted, tested by the evil one, the Satan. And Jesus withstands that temptation, what you and I so rarely do. He withstands that temptation and then what does he do? Having withstood the temptation, he goes proclaiming the good news of freedom, of release, and he starts delivering people. He starts affecting the release that he's announcing. This is what the freedom is. Now you might say, rightly, okay, Alright, that's pretty interesting. Uh, But when I look around, I don't see lots of people sort of full of unclean spirits who need deliverance. I mean, you see people, yes, but unclean spirits, what's that about? Let me tell you a quick story. A few years ago, I was was a pastor in a church and um, a great, great guy came up to me with an absolutely wacky plan. Great guy came up to me and he said, oh, Rowan, just, I want to go and tell Eskimos about Jesus. So my first response was, I think you need to call them Inuits, or you might get in trouble. Anyway, but he said, no, I want to go and tell Eskimos about Jesus, and I found this evangelical, I found an evangelical mission group who want to proclaim the good news to Eskimos in the Eskimo song. And so I've got in contact with them via the internet, and you're going to get sent an email asking you for a character reference, because I'd like to go. Okay. Anyway, I'm filling in with the whole way the conversation went from that point of view. We explored many, many very interesting consequences of this, but off he went and he did it. He came back. We're sitting down in my house, having a cup of tea, tell me the stories, what's what's it been like? Uh, And the stories were really, really strange. Very, very strange. He said, "This, this people, 
nothing about their physical possessions, interestingly. He said, all their houses unlocked and open 24-7. And he says, they live in absolute terror of being put under some sort of ancestral curse. They are terrified of curses of the ancestors. So much so that people have been through before and given them Bibles, they still had the Bibles wrapped in the original plastic, never opened, which they put under their pillows to ward off the evil spirits, like some sort of charm. The tragedy of never actually opening to actually listen to the words that freedom of the Jews had. And weird things happened to my friend while he was there. Very strange things. And he talked about these things and he was perfectly safe in Christ. And so he came, came I said to him, how come none of that really, I mean, that's full how come none of that spiritual stuff happens here? And I think in a moment of real prophetic insight, his answer was, the evil one doesn't need to. He's got everyone right where he needs him through materialism. Greed, the New Testament tells us, is idolatry. Why would the evil one need to do sort of kooky, wacky, weird stuff to freak you out when frankly, we're all worshipping the mighty dollar and just going hard for that. He doesn't need you anything else. See, the thing you learn there is that spiritual warfare, spiritual realities of evil, it is real. But it also is quite varied. It can look really different. Greed is as spiritual as keeping a Bible under your pillow to walk off the evil spirits. Spiritual warfare is very, very varied. It's real but varied. Second thing, of course, no, it's in Christ. There's nothing to fear of any of those spiritual things. But I just want to explore you. Might it be, might it be that actually we are enslaved to some of these lies? I just want to suggest to you five, five quick things as we wrap up. Five things that actually I think Jesus in this Luke's Gospel actually comes and proclaims freedom about. I suggest to you that we are actually often in slavery to fear. I'll give you five examples. Slavery of fear to future insecurity. Slavery to fear of future insecurity. Why are you in uni? To get a good job, get a better job than if I didn't come, right? Why are you working a part-time job on top of your uni that you are? Well, I want to make sure my CV looks a bit better than the other person who's come to uni to get a good job. But why are you trying to work that summer clutching? Well, because I want my CV to look better than the other people who work a part-time job so I can get a better job. Why do you need a better job? Well, I need a better job to get on a better sort of pay scale so I can make you know, my career more secure. Why do you need that? Well, I need to be able to get a deposit to buy a house. Like, if I can't secure a house and I have to be renting it, well, that's not going to secure that. would be crazy. You don't plan out your whole life because you are afraid of future insecurity. Well, if you haven't, your parents have. And what does Jesus say? Luke 12, read it later. Why are you worried about what you will wear or what you will eat? Your heavenly Father knows you need those things, so seek his kingdom and those things will be given to you. He completely puts his finger on that fear and says, there's freedom if you will trust me. What about the, the slavery to the fear of insignificance? I need to be somebody. I come to you and I just feel like a nobody. Just not, I have to be somebody. I'm going to go to the gym and make myself buff. Then I'll be somebody. <laughs> I'm going to get in a band because they're cool and they're somebody. They've got an identity. I'm going to work hard at my studies so that I can be successful because then I'll be somebody. 
We are in slavery to fear of insignificance. And what does Jesus say in Luke's Gospel? Luke 12. He says, Consider the flowers of the field, how beautifully God clothes them. Consider the birds of the air, how God provides for all their needs. And then he says, Are not you more significant than flowers or birds to God? And you're living in slavery to this fear of insignificance. But what about the slavery to the fear of loneliness? Who will love me? I'm 20 and single. My goodness, my life must be over. (laughs) Who will love me? What does Jesus say about that? What does he say? Luke 8, I think it is, where he says, looking around at the people who have trusted in his words, and he says, Here are my mother and my brother and my sister. That is, there is a new family to be part of in Christ. What about, what about the fact that we live so much of our life in slavery to the fear of being judged by God? What can I do to make myself right with God? How can I pacify Him? How can I please Him so that when I get there, then finally I say, okay, you survive. What religious practice will I do? What what sort of good deeds will I do? Do you see, we live in slavery to this fear of judgment. What does Jesus say? He says, you know, God is the one who seeks for the lost. He comes after you. And then, and Luke 18, the parable of the tax collector and the Pharisees says, all you have to do is come to God in your need and ask for his mercy, and you go home right with God. He addresses our fear. And finally, what about the fact that we live so much of our life in slavery to the fear of death? We are so scared of death, we don't even talk about it, we don't want to think about it, we just deny it. Even as I say it now, you go, no, no, that's all better. And Jesus says, they're going to kill me, and I will rise again. Chapter 8. Oh, sorry, chapter 9 and chapter 18. And then, chapter 24, he does. He breaks death's strong bands. The bands that we all think are permanent and inescapable, and you just can't change. No, Jesus destroys death, brings freedom. Those held in slavery by the fear of Jesus comes with good news of God's kingdom. What's the good news? Freedom. It's the freedom that you crave. And it's on offer in this Jesus. So why don't you listen to him? Take the time to listen to his good news. Take the time to work out whether you're going to believe him and receive the great blessings that he came to give for his friends. I think that we're going to close in prayer. Is that right? Step, thanks. Let pray for you. we thank you that in the person of Jesus we can know the freedom from all the fears that so often bind us. Lord, would you, by your spirit, incline our hearts to reacquaint ourselves with who you are? Would you soften our hearts that we would read your word, we would listen to your word, and that we believe and trust you. For your sake. Amen. Do you want to put your connection?